0: Beloved, it has been said that a fence at the top of a cliff is better than an ambulance at the bottom. Now, some people would say that some fences are suggestions, not edicts, not commands. That might even be what the great conservative thinker G.K. Chesterton had in mind when he said, before you move a fence, first find out why it is there. Good sage words of wisdom You know, when you think about it, it may be true that some man-made fences may be indeed suggestions rather than commands. But having said that, the fences, the boundaries that God gives us in the pages of Scripture are not suggestions. They are fixed. They are right. They are sound. They are there for our blessing. The 18th century English poet Alexander Pope, in his essay of man, had his finger on something that kind of points in this direction. The idea being that the familiarity with sin, the familiarity with vice, has an escalating, degrading fashion and capacity. This is what he said. He said, "...vice is a monster of so frightful mean, as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too often, familiar with face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace." And that is a reality. We understand that sin is a blasting presence, even as new creatures in Christ Jesus, in the flesh, in this body of death, on the side of glory. It is a battle. It is a fight to the death. Every fine power shrinks and withers in its destructive heat of sin. Every spiritual delicacy succumbs to the malignant touch of a vice. Sin impairs the sight, leading to blindness. Sin dulls the hearing, leading to deafness. Sin perverts the taste and confuses men and women where they think the sweet is bitter, and the bitter is sweet. Sin hardens the touch and can eventually render a man or woman past feeling. Now, beloved, we know that sin has been dealt with at the cross for those who, are forgiven of our sins by the finished, atoning, vicarious work of Jesus Christ. And we do understand that it is a war. It is, again, a fight to the death that we battle every second of every day. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Our passage this morning, are verses from Ephesians 4 verse 31 to chapter 5 verse 4. And what we have here is in these six verses, we have a command per verse for the first five verses. The fifth command encompasses the last two verses. What the apostle Paul does here is he begins with a negative command, then a positive, 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 and he finishes with another negative command. And the idea here is that Paul wants the Ephesian believers, God wants you and I to understand that we are to live differently because we are different. This is flowing from what we have already studied in chapter 4, especially verse 17 and forward, where we are to put off the grave clothes and to put on the grace Closed. We are to remove again the old man way of thinking and put on a new again the new man way of thinking, the newness of life that we enjoy in Christ. We don't need a church that moves with the world. We need a church that moves the world. And one of the things that we should understand right here from the beginning is in this passage, Paul is not admonishing the culture of the world. Paul is addressing the church of God. Beloved, please follow along in your Bibles as I read our passage this morning beginning in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks beloved this is the word of god that has been read in your hearing please attend to it as such so what we have here is paul is laying a pattern for the believers in ephesus but it is not just for the believers in ephesus this is for all believers in all circumstances for all time not just ephesus but gilbert and shanghai and Moscow, and wherever one may find himself or herself. It's a reminder, beloved, that in Christ, in the kingdom of God, in the spiritual temple that God is building, in the body of Christ, in the family of God, there are privileges we enjoy, and there are responsibilities we face. Well, let's look at the first two commands in the last two verses of chapter 4. And again, this is this continuation of putting off and putting on, which especially came out in verses 22 through 24. And what Paul says here is, put off a bitter, angry heart and put on a tender, forgiving heart. And even in terms of heart conditions, the right kind of heart conditions will lead to a habit. And the first command is what we just said, put off a bitter Angry heart. Again, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, we're not going to belabor. What we'll see is we see six different vices, six different sins just in this one verse. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5, we'll see six more strong words. We won't belabor and dig super deep down any one of these. We'll have more of kind of a composite picture but we can go through them and understand what it is he's trying to communicate and what he is saying here is that this bitterness the original meaning of this word bitterness meant pointed or sharp this is a word that the apostle john used when he wrote the revelation of jesus in the book of revelation the revelation of john of the unveiling of jesus when he talks in revelation 8 verse 11 that the water becomes wormwood and it becomes bitter That's the kind of root that he doesn't want us to have in our hearts. So he moves from bitterness, and then he talks about wrath and anger. I'll take those in reverse order. The anger that he's talking about here, this is a settled condition. It's a continuous state of smoldering hatred, which is fomenting, which can then eventually explode out in an outburst of wrath, of a seething anger breaking out in words and then even deeds. And then clamor, so bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. Clamor is the loud attention getting stirring up of a crowd. I'm not happy with my situation, and everybody needs to know about it. Everybody else should be offended as I am. It's interesting we can think of the clamor of social media. Social media can serve a good purpose, but the outpouring of the wrath and the bitterness and sadly even from professing christians at time is something that is witnessed well paul continues he talks about slander the greek word translated as slander is blasphemia we get the english word blasphemy from it we understand at some level what it means for somebody to blaspheme god but paul is using this word here against one another he's talking about harmful abusive speech of evil speaking against another's reputation and then the sixth and final vice sin that Paul brings out in this sordid litany in the sordid list is malice which you can understand is evil feelings towards others with intention to hurt it's a fixed determination to harm another and in one sense, this malice can almost be kind of an umbrella of the first five. It's, it's from this kind of malicious intent and desire to harm others that the others flow. But at the same time, the bitterness and the anger and the wrath and the malicious gossip and slander that come out flows from a malicious heart as well. It's interesting, Aristotle when was describing a bitter, angry heart as a heart that refuses reconciliation. What Aristotle said was it's an embittered and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. It's in direct contrast to what God would have for us in the body Now, as we think of these things, uh, we again understand that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Our sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven. And at the same time, we understand that we are engaged in this battle. We are seeking to put to death the deeds of of the flesh and the little seeds of these sins may be unplanned and they may even be imperceptible at the beginning but when they take root they will grow into noxious weeds and it's something that the author of Hebrews had in his heart even in the context of bitterness when he wrote in Hebrews 12 verse 15 see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Beloved, in Christ, what the author of Hebrews was thinking, and certainly Paul, as Paul in this magnificent letter to the church at Ephesus, where he brings out the doctrine of the church, and the dynamic of the church, and the blessings of the church, and the responsibility of the individual members, the individual masterpieces in the church, It's what they had in mind is that we, when we sin, when we fall short, we're not just impacting ourselves. We are impacting our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can think and we should be reminded that even as we think of the Apostle Paul, we remember that Paul is writing this from his first Roman imprisonment. He is imprisoned. He is chained to a Roman guard for the gospel. And from a human perspective, one might think, well, if somebody even had righteous anger over injustice, we saw that earlier in chapter four, that if we have righteous anger, which we should have righteous anger, we should be angry over things that make God in his perfect righteous anger angry. But if we don't deal with that righteous anger quickly, that can foment and change into unrighteous anger but in any event if anyone had a right to be bitter or angry it would be the apostle paul but that's not the case we don't get any sense of that whatsoever as he writes this letter which is known as a prison epistle and by the way paul had the same kind of message to the church in colossi uh, the companion letter in colossians 3 verse 8 paul there also said put them all aside anger Wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Um, like Paul, like the author of Hebrews, like Paul, like King David. In Psalm 37, verse 8, there David said, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. And I love this. Do not fret. Do not fret. <laughs> the fret, I'm not sure that fits in with the anger and the wrath, but look, don't fret it. Don't fret it, brother. It, sorry. <laughs> Do not fret, it only leads to evil doing. The root of bitterness springs up and defiles many. Anger, wrath, and fret leads only to evil doing. Now, we understand, I am definitely not an agriculturalist at all, but I know enough that if you want to get rid of weeds, you can't just cut them off. You have to remove them from the root. But we understand that when we look at the weeds, the noxious weeds of sin and vices, even the ones that the Apostle Paul has listed here, it is not enough to merely root out the weeds. Rather, we need to plant the blossoming flowers of the virtues that God enables us through the indwelling Holy Spirit to blossom. The flowers need to be planted and cultivated. Giving up old vices won't be enough. We must have them replaced by new virtues and new patterns of life and that's why Paul moves from put off a bitter angry heart and rather put on a tender forgiving heart he says in verse 32 in essence let kindness and forgiveness replace bitterness and malice verse 32 and be kind to one another tender-hearted literally he says become kind to one another, become tender-hearted to one another. And even the grammar behind the command here is it's a standing order. Continually be becoming kind to one another. He's not saying that there's no vestige, there's no shred of kindness or tender-hearted, but when we understand God's high standard, keep on becoming kind and tender-hearted to one another as a demonstration of the work of Christ in your life. Again, similar language that he gave to the Colossians, Colossians 3, verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, all demonstrating the kind of sympathy and love that God intends for you and I to have towards one another, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this kindness and tenderheartedness that Paul is bringing out here is the opposite of the sinful anger and wrath in verse 31. It's a tenderness, a kindness that is expressed toward the suffering, the difficult, the miserable. It's a willingness to suffer even injury and hurt for the glory of God and for the blessings of one another. And Christ's work at the cross was a substitutionary work. He took our place. He died in our place so that when God looks at me and when God looks at you, He doesn't see my sinful, wicked life. He sees the perfect, righteous life of Christ. So there is a substitution. He bore the wrath of God on the cross for my sake, for your sake. And it is also an example used in Scripture for us. And the kind of kindness and tenderheartedness of Christ that he demonstrated towards us. The just died for the unjust. The perfectly loving died for the perfectly unlovable if you will. And it's interesting, these dynamics are, these heart conditions are living and active. It's not merely something that is there for the show. You can think of it, you can think of the difference between a freshly cut and harvested rose that has the smell of a rose, and you can think of that in comparison to an artificial rose. From a distance, from an appearance standpoint, the artificial rose may even look a little bit better than the true real thing but an artificial rose is cold it's dead it's hard there's no warmth to it there's nothing that ultimately attracts one to it once you get past the veneer of the surface beloved in the same way the kind of kindness and tenderheartedness that he's talking about here are active virtues of practical nature it's goodness towards others it should saturate your entire person that will mellow out all harsh aspects and smooth out even the rough and serrated edges first of what's in the heart and then of what's in the mouth and then of what's in our actions. And by the way, these two heart conditions of kindness and tenderheartedness will produce a habit. At the end of verse 32, forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. Sending away as far as the east is from the west. Do we even remove the remembrance of the offenses against us. This forgiveness that we see here, it is the opposite of the malice that we saw back in verse 31. And again, the grammar here says this is a continuous practice of us. We are continually forgiving one another. That's part of what it means to be in the body of Christ, part of what it means to be a new creature in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us the example just as God in Christ also has forgiven you this is the model for our forgiveness of others we could say it this way God for Christ's sake forgives us we for Christ's sakes forgive one another that's the message that Paul brings out here and again similar passage similar thought from Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the lord forgave you so also should you forgive one another we do understand that the wisdom of the world says well when your rights are trampled over when you're wronged, you have a right to get a pound of flesh but what god says here through paul is that a lack of forgiveness makes you bitter an inability to forgive will create wrath and anger and the whispers behind the back of malicious slander. Beloved, we understand in the final analysis around forgiveness that forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a matter of obedience. And we also understand when we look at the New Testament that we are to forgive one another immediately, repeatedly, and completely. Mark 11, verse 25, you may remember Christ said whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also is who is in heaven may forgive you your transgression so the point there is that we are to forgive immediately while you're praying there's no interaction there's no transaction between the one that has sinned against us or the one that has something against us of asking for forgiveness. The forgiveness God talks about here is a complete release of any bitterness in the heart, and we are to do it immediately. We're also to do it repeatedly. Remember the language of Christ? Well, how many times do I have to forgive that brother over there? Seventy times seven. And we know that doesn't mean that... number 491. Okay, now we don't need to forgive. He's using numerical language to say you need to be forgiving each other immediately and repeatedly. And then, of course, we are to forgive one another completely. I mentioned this before, but Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, is God's forgiveness of us. That's the kind of forgiveness we are to have towards one another. What what does this mean practically? Well, this means that If I truly have forgiven my brother or sister, if I truly have released any shred of bitterness in the heart, it means that my mind won't continually dwell on this. It won't keep an account of it. It's a kind of dimension of love that doesn't take into account a wrong in 1 Corinthians 13. It means I won't bring the matter up to myself. It means I won't bring the matter up to you. And it most certainly means I won't bring the matter up to another even in the context of the slander he talked about before beloved the sun makes ice melt in the same way this kind of tender forgiving heart evaporates the sins the heart sins the sins that begin in the heart and then go out of the mouth that we saw back in verse 31 the bitterness wrath anger clamor slander and malice so put off a bitter, angry heart. Put on, rather, a tender, forgiving heart. And that leads us to the third and fourth commands, which are imitate God and walk in love. Beloved, God forgave our sins. He is compassionate and kind towards us. And we are, in verse 1 of chapter 5, commanded to imitate God. This is the high watermark God has set for your He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, we have seen in Ephesians that Paul brings out the doctrine and the wonder of God the Father in his holiness, in his sovereignty throughout the entire letter. And he has reminded us that we are part of the family of God. We are his beloved children. And as such, we are to imitate God in the same way that children will imitate their father. That's what we are to do with God. And the word translated as imitator here is mimitase. We get the English word mimic from it. And it's one thing we've seen this elsewhere. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. I mean, that's pretty staggering to think of that concept, to think of trying to imitate Christ. Christ did live as a man, so there's, there's, there's a human connection there we can get. And Paul even gives kind of a layer of separation, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But this is a whole other level after these four chapters of just staggering doctrine of God the Father. He says, imitate God. That is shocking. Now, What does that mean? Does that mean we are to try to imitate God in his omnipotence, in his omniscience? No, we are not to attempt to, it would be blasphemous to try to even think we could imitate him in his incommunicable attributes. But God's communicable attributes, that we can aspire towards. His righteousness, justice, goodness, love, mercy, compassion, tenderness, long-suffering, loving-kindness, faithfulness, and forgiveness God tells you and I God tells you and me through the apostle Paul to imitate God I see the English teachers out there (laughs) beloved again this is the high watermark God has set John MacArthur said the whole of the Christian life could be summed up in this one statement William Barclay said the highest standard in the world called this. Alexander McLaren said, this is the sum of all duty. The good doctor, Martin Lloyd Jones, said, this is the most staggering and astonishing statement we can ever face. This is Paul's supreme argument, the ultimate ideal. And beloved, this is somewhat in line with what even the apostle Peter had in his heart when he quoted what God had commanded the nation of Israel in Leviticus chapter 11. So there are new, new dimensions, there are new nuances with the progressive revelation that God gave when he gave the New Testament from the Old Testament, but it's the same God, the same standard. Peter, in 1 Peter 1 verse 14, says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance but like the holy one who called you be holy yourselves also in all your behavior and that was a quote from leviticus 11 verse 45 when god through moses told the nation of israel what be holy even as i am holy now as parents we understand that we keep the standard high for our children but the pressure low Beloved, the standard God calls us to is the infinitely high standard. Be holy even as I am holy. Imitate God. Straightforward. That is the challenge. That is the call. There's different ways we could look at this. Uh, the missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, he made a great application of this in the context of something small in the aspect of God, and God's attention to detail and his concern for the minutiae he talked about how God is careful careful exact and perfect in all his ways even when he makes a little butterfly wing he crafts it carefully the structure the shape the color everything is perfect and this is what Hudson Taylor said he said this quote should not the little things of our daily life be as relatively perfect as the lesser creations of God are perfect like a butterfly's wing ought we be more thorough in our service not simply doing well that which will be seen and noticed but as our father makes many a flower to bloom unseen in the lonely desert so we do all we can do as under his eye though no other eye may ever take notice In short, in all that we are and in all that we do, use the full measure of your ability, which God has given you to the glory of his holy name, end quote. Beloved, God is never careless or sloppy. A characteristically lazy, sloppy man is an unholy man every time we do a lazy sloppy thing we become a little more of a sluggard and less like god rather every time by god's grace and mercy we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness and take care of the little details we become more like god and if you want a practical statement i love what the navy admiral william mcraven said if you want to change the world start by making your bed a great little book make your bed. I think Christian Andreessen, when he was here, might have even mentioned it before. Beloved, the point here is, the point Paul is bringing out here when he says imitate God is the way you work, the way you eat, the way you sleep, the way we play, the way we exercise, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we rest, the way we dress. Every area of our life needs to be under the command of God. Whether then we eat or drink, what? Do all to the glory of of God. Be imitators of God. Second, or actually fourth, walk in love. Now, when we read through Ephesians, we see that the love of God saturates the entire letter. There's not a chapter in Ephesians that doesn't have more than one reference to the great love of God. If We don't understand this love of God at some level. We don't understand Ephesians. So that's why he says the fourth command in verse 2, and walk in love. And the grammar here, again, standing order. This is our continual command call from God to be walking in love. This is the third of five commands from God or mentions from God in chapter 4, verse 17 through chapter 5, verse 21 about our walk. Uh, when Paul figuratively speaking turned the page going from the first half of Ephesians with the emphasis on doctrine in chapters one through three and then the greater emphasis on practice and application and duty in the latter three chapters that's how he began in verse one he said walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called and then in verse 17 of chapter 4 he reminded us that we ought to in the ephesian believers who were predominantly gentile he said walk no longer as the gentiles walk and then this is again the third of five and in verse two he commands us to walk in love in verse eight we are commanded to walk in light and then in verse 15 we are exhorted to walk in wisdom and you see love is the measuring stick uh, all our professions all our claims all our activities must be measured by the yardstick of love love is the test in the same way that paul brings out again referenced before in first corinthians 13 or colossians 3 verse 14 another verse from the companion chapter from the companion book colossians three fourteen. beyond all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity you see Love is the glue that holds the church together, Paul brings out in Colossians 3 here in Ephesians 5. And understand this, your walk in love is necessary because God commands it. And your walk in love is possible because the Spirit enables it. That is what Paul, that is what God communicates to us here. Now, what does this walk look like? We understand we can't define for ourselves what walking in love looks like but god does give clear instruction and guidance and he gives the example continuing verse two just as christ also loved you or loved us beloved your walk in love must flow from and correspond to the expression of god's love in jesus and we realize when I look at myself, there's nothing in and of myself to re- recommend me to Him. There's nothing to draw the love of God, nothing of me in and of myself to attract it. Using biblical language, ugly, vile, foul are used throughout Scripture. Paul, when Paul was writing to Titus, talked about how he was hateful and hating on one another. That's what we were. That's why. The love of God is so amazing. That's why the standard, the ideal is so high. That's why the great hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote, love so amazing, love so divine. What? Demands my soul, my life, my all. What more could I give? Now, it's very easy to sing those words. It's impossible for me to sing those words well because I can't sing but it's very easy to sing the words well or poorly, as the case may be. It's an entirely different matter to actually do them. And it's the practice alone, beloved, that proves whether or not we are really doing it. And as we consider the divine illustration that God gives for us here in our verse, we realize that freely he loved and freely he died. And that's why it says at the end of verse 2, and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice you know it's interesting you'll have great you'll have a great challenge to try to find the love of God in the New Testament apart from some kind of reference direct or indirect to the cross that is always God's illustration of his great love Augustine said the cross is the pulpit from which God preaches his love to the world An offering and a sacrifice. What do these two words mean? The offering is the sinless life that Christ lived. The sacrifice is a sacrificial death that he voluntarily gave at the cross. But he continues still here, verse 2, as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So what we see here is he offered up his sinless life and his sacrificial death for us, to God to God as a fragrant aroma this means this language the offering the sacrifice the fragrant aroma all coming richly from the old testament means that Jesus fulfilled all the offerings all the sacrifices the seven feasts of Leviticus 23 are fulfilled in Christ this means that love is displayed justice is satisfied and wrath is quenched by the way Just to grab one piece from the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 80, verses 20 and 21, after the righteous man Noah and his wife and his three sons, their three sons and their three wives, came off the ark, and Noah offered up a sacrifice of thanksgiving and worship and praise to God. And in Genesis 8, verses 20 and 21, you read these words, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Watch this. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Beloved, beloved, again, love is displayed, justice is satisfied, and the holy, righteous wrath of God is quenched. And by the way, what's amazing is the Apostle Paul will bring out similar imagery when he wrote his second letter, second biblical letter to the church in Corinth in the context of our ministry, our service. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Paul says, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in His triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Beloved, what this means is Because you have been forgiven, you can be enabled by the Spirit. You can be forgiving. Because you are loved, you can be loving. That is what Paul communicates to us here. So put off a bitter, angry heart. Put on a tender, forgiving heart. Imitate God. Walk in love. The fifth command is in verses 3. The the command, the imperative is in verse 3. But it goes into verse 4, namely it is terminate immorality and vulgarity with extreme prejudice. And one of the advantages of going through the Bible consecutively and systematically is that we go through portions we might otherwise skip over left to our own devices and whims. We follow the scriptures and take them as a whole, the positive and the negative. We follow them wherever they lead. We submit ourselves to the word of God utterly and absolutely and follow every step of the way and what Paul does here is he uses three words three negative words powerfully intense negative words to describe immorality in verse three and then he uses another three powerfully intense words to describe vulgarity in verse four and that is because the negative is painfully essential three times beloved once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. And when you think of the phrase, terminate with extreme prejudice, in military operations, it means an aggressive execution of the goal. In covert intelligence circles, it's basically an order to assassinate. And that is the language that Paul brings out here. Put it to death. First, he says, terminate immorality with extreme prejudice. Prejudice. Verse 3. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. One more time, Paul here is not admonishing the culture, he's addressing the church. And With these words, I won't drill down deep and belabor the point. We'll take them more as a composite, but the context here is primarily in the case of sexual perversion and immorality. Immorality is the word pornea. We get the English word pornography from it. Impurity is a word that talks about waste. It's used to describe, for example, rotting flesh in the grave. uh, Christ, when Christ was pronouncing woes upon the scribes and pharisees in matthew 23 verse 27 he said you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness and the point here the way paul uses that word that was translated as uncleanness there and in here is in the same way the vile rotten stench that goes with sexual sin of any kind and then the third word is greed, the voracious appetite for that which God forbids, an insatiable desire for more. And in the same way that when people abuse drugs, they begin to become sensitized or desensitized, I should say, desensitized to the drug, and they require more and more or more intense drugs, so also, also with sexual perversion, it's the same dynamics. And by the way, Paul uses the same kind of language Earlier in chapter 4, verse 19, when he was reminding the Ephesian believers what their life was like as Gentiles in Ephesus with that great temple of Artemis and Diana and their ritual prostitutes. And in chapter 4, verse 19, Paul said, They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So, the pornea, the immorality, the impurity, the greed, the, it's fornication, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia. All these terms fall even under that first word, pornea, and are throughout uh, the Bible. And, beloved, people will sacrifice. When the voracious appetite of greed sets in, people will sacrifice everything to get it. They'll destroy children, they'll destroy spouse they'll destroy job, they'll destroy home, they'll destroy anything when greediness says I've got to have this to be satisfied, to fulfill my fantasy, but it never comes because it's a lie spawned in the pit from Satan. The Well, I couldn't help it. I, I fell in love outside my marriage. That's not a proof of love. That's not true love. That's not a justification divorce for divorce. It's a demonstration of a rotten sinful heart and what paul says at the end of verse 3 let them not even be named among you as is proper among saints among holy ones the holy god has made us positionally holy in christ and let these not have any tie in with us whatsoever and Even here, when he calls us saints, Paul is reminding us that we are in union with Christ and we are in communion with Christ. So he says, terminate immorality with extreme prejudice. And then in verse 4, he says, terminate vulgarity with extreme prejudice. Using, again, three more words. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. Filthiness, that's literally an ugliness. It's so intense, it's disordered and unnatural. Silly talk, mora moragia, moronic words is what that literally says. And I remember I came across this phrase some time ago and I liked it. Profanity is the language of the inarticulate. Filthiness, silly talk. Paul moves from the lowbrow obscenity of silly talk to the highbrow obscenity of coarse jesting. He moves from the moronic stupidity of the drunkard to the sophisticated obscenity of the clever, dirty mind. Warren Wearsby said this He said, There are two indications of a person's character what makes him weep and what makes him laugh. And beloved, what the apostle Paul is saying here is he's not just describing avoiding the practice of these. He's saying, don't even think about it. Don't even talk about it. Certainly don't joke about it. Don't let that which is abnormal become normal in our thinking because if, it becomes, if that which is abnormal becomes normal in our thinking, it will become normal in our speech and then it will lead to becoming normal even in our deeds and what we do and say. We must take seriously the sins that break the bonds of marriage, that destroy the sanctity of the family and cause children to be born without two parents to love, nurture, and train. And like The oncologist, with no accommodation, no compromise of just leaving a little bit, the oncologist says, get it all out of there, cut it out, radiate it, chemo, kill it. This is the language the Apostle Paul brings out. He's using this language to describe every form of sexual sin that attacks the sanctity of God's good gift of marriage and of God's good gift of intimacy. Every form of distraction, temptation, and perversion that falls outside the heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong commitment of God's gift of a marriage between a man and a woman. And understand this. We need to understand this. In line of being in union with Christ and in communion with Christ. You can't go somewhere and say, well, I'm going to park Jesus here for 15 minutes and then go and engage this thing over here and then come back and pick up Jesus again. No, you drag Jesus. We drag. When we sin, we drag Jesus with us. I remember hearing this statement, and it was affirmed by police officers that I know, that women and children if somebody tries, and I'm going somewhere with this by way of illustration, if somebody tries to capture you and take you, fight to the death in the first location. Because if they get you into the car and take you to a second location, you are dead. So fight to the death in the first location. And the point here is this, in the same way, when temptation and sin raises its ugly head, fight to the death right away. The longer it wins, the more difficult the battle, the greater the fall, the more tangled the web, and the greater the defilement. And now, does Paul finish this way? He doesn't just finish with the negative. He gives us a positive at the end. When we think, okay, what would be the leading answer to immorality and to impurity? We, we think, well, it's morality and purity. And to be sure, morality and purity are an answer. But that's not what Paul leads with. Look at what he leads with. He leads with thanksgiving. He says, but rather giving of thanks. This is a safeguard against idolatry. Safeguard against idolatry in our heart, which becomes idolatry in our lips, and idolatry in what we say and do and where we go. And beloved, as a married Christian, for you married Christians, you must have a high and holy view of sexual intimacy. It is a good gift God has given to you and should be the subject of your thanksgiving. And joking about intimacy degrades, but thanking God for his good gift of intimacy preserves its worth as a blessing from your loving creator. So, We do not, we are not to degrade the good gift by doing them at the wrong time with the wrong person, but rather we thank God by enjoying his good gifts at the right time with the right person. That's why the Apostle, excuse me, that's why Solomon, why King Solomon in Proverbs 5 verse 15 said, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Beloved, Holiness is not a condition into which we just naturally drift. I'm going to finish with a long quote from J.C. Ryle in his essay, Thoughts for Young Men. This is what Pastor Ryle said. He said, Try, I beseech you, to realize the fact that your soul is the one thing worth living for, it is the part of you which ought always to be first considered. No place, no employment is good for you which injures your soul. No friend, no companion deserves your confidence who makes light of your soul's concern. Think for a moment what you were sent into the world for, not merely to eat and drink and indulge the desires of the flesh, not merely to dress out your body and follow its lusts, whithersoever they may lead you, not merely to work and sleep and laugh and talk and enjoy yourselves and think of nothing but time, No, you were meant for something higher and better than this. You were placed here to train for eternity. Your body was only intended to be a house for your mortal spirit. The poorest saint that ever died in a workhouse is nobler in God's sight than the richest sinner that ever died in a palace. And he finishes out, do not forget this. Keep in view, morning, noon, and night, the interests of your soul. Rise up each day, desiring that it may prosper. Lie down each evening, inquiring of yourself whether it has really got on. Remember Zeuxis, the great painter of old. When men asked him why he labored so intensely, it took such extreme pains with every picture. His simple answer was, I paint for eternity. Do not be ashamed to be like him. Set your immortal soul before your mind's eye. And when men ask you why you live as you do, answer them in his spirit. I live for my soul. Believe me, the day is fast coming when the soul will be the one thing men will think of and the only item and the only question of importance will be this. Is my soul lost or is my soul saved? Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise You and thank You, Lord. We thank You for the knowledge we have of You. Thank You, Lord God, that You are holy, that You are righteous. We thank You for the infinitely high standard You set before us. Lord, forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from unrighteousness. Lord, help us to put these deeds of the flesh to death. Help us to put on again And anew with fresh vigor, with fresh excitement, with fresh understanding, with fresh application and energy and strength. The new way of life, the virtues that you lay out before us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin that we enjoy by virtue of your once for all offering and sacrifice. And thank you, Lord God, that that is a standard. Let us grow in our love for you. May we grow in our love for one another. And may we grow even in our love for those that don't know you as Lord and Savior. Use our lives as beacons of light on a hill to light the way to the good news of the forgiveness of sin that is available only through you, by faith alone in you, through your finished, complete work at the cross. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.